The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Folks, everyone. I'm going to continue this uh, subject from last week and save a little bit more time for questions and maybe a little bit more specific focus on our formal meditation practice and uh, just how to hold that practice, how to understand that practice that we do, or some of us do, maybe all of us aspire to do. And, of course, in order to understand our practice, we have to have some sense of why we want to do it. And, in fact, that's not a small thing. What we actually do when we sit down in a quiet way has more to do with why the motivation than what we've been told about meditation, the instruction we receive. What we're really acting out is that motivation. So if we come to meditation practice because... You know, we're stressed in life, then we might use that meditation time just to relax, which of course is not a bad thing to do. But it may be somewhat limited, meaning there may be a better use of that time than just relaxing, just not doing what we normally do. You know, not running around doing this and that. So now we're sitting still and like sitting on a couch. We're sitting in a hammock, or lying on the grass and looking at the clouds. Those are really nice things to do. They feel comfortable, and it's peaceful until we start to worry or plan. And that's a lot like some of our sits are. You know, it's just a, a break from our busy day. We have some quiet time. I mean, it is, for me, I know, and probably for most of us, when I think about why I meditate... Part, partly what comes to mind is I am stressed, and uh, I do recognize how my mind can create problems for itself. It can construct this worry or that problem that I then worry about, or this desire that I then crave, or this fear that I then think about how I'm not going to fall into that, or how can I get rid of that. So we do want to be at ease. We do want to be safe. Protected. We do want a nice experience, but maybe, uh, hopefully, we also understand that a lot of the ways that we try to have a nice experience, that we try to be peaceful, that we try to be safe, don't really work. There are repercussions, like inefficient, counterproductive strategies. A lot of our strategies are counterproductive. And even when we do get relatively peaceful states and happy states of mind, we feel pretty settled and pretty safe. On some level, we realize that it's, uh, it's fragile, like it can change. There's a funny story that Sylvia Borstein tells of lying or sitting there or being there, I should say, and thinking to herself, uh, I'm feeling pretty peaceful. I'm not harming anybody. I have no negative qualities in my mind right now. And then she adds, but soon I'll have to get out of bed. 
and interact with other human beings and, you know, take up my duties and responsibilities as a human being. And then it may not be so easy to live in a way where I'm not harming myself or others, to live in a way where the heart is relaxed and peaceful. And so that's part of our motivation for practice. That's why it's not enough just to want to be peaceful, because we know that our conditions won't always be as nice as they are when we sit down to meditate, where we have a quiet spot, people are leaving us alone, we have some techniques of, you know, redirecting the attention back to something neutral like the breath and the body or the sensations of the body sitting. And we know, you know, over time, if we stick with it, we learn these different ways to calm the mind down, to feel safe. But we know it won't always be so easy because, you know, eventually we're going to have to do something. Go back into the world. And every time we go back into the world, all those experiences we meet, they trigger all kinds of conditioning, all kinds of habit energy. Greed, aversion, fear, envy, jealousy, strong desire or lust, confusion and doubt, self-hatred, rage, as well as some really beautiful emotional patterns get triggered too, like forgiveness and gratefulness and patience and simple kindness and friendliness. So all kinds of things are going to get triggered as we enter the world because more than anything, what we are, you know, if we wanted a really honest answer to the question, who are we or what are we, we'd say we're this collection of dispositions or this collection of tendencies. And as we go out into the world, the different experiences we run into they trigger a certain part of this great ocean of dispositions or tendencies. And those things just come rising up. And there's really not much anybody can do about that. Even for an enlightened being, experiences will trigger the conditioned response. The difference between a wise being and somebody who hasn't practiced a lot, doesn't have a lot of wisdom is, that when those conditioned patterns get triggered, a wise person understands conditioned patterns are getting triggered, and it's like this. So there's that clear seeing, that clearly comprehending, that mindful comprehension that, oh, it's like this. And part of that comprehension is understanding that this particular emotional pattern that's gotten triggered is really skillful. So we're not afraid to let it express itself in terms of our words and our actions. And in the next moment, clear comprehension would understand this emotional pattern that's gotten triggered. This is not wholesome. So then the practice is to, because there's nothing to do, you can't stop it. That would be hatred or repression. So you let that pattern arise, but now it's arising in the space of wisdom. Excuse me. I guess that's it. So it's arising in the space of wisdom. And then what wisdom understands, what wisdom comprehends is be with this because it's already this way. But don't get identified with it. Don't take it personally and don't act it out. Don't add anything to it and don't try to take anything away because that, let's say, 
pattern of anger, it's going to arise because of whatever triggered it. But if, if it isn't fed with the mind identifying with it, it will arise and cease pretty quickly. And generally you can, I mean, it's not a perfect barometer, but generally the more steady the mindfulness is and the clear comprehension of what's going on, the more deep and steady that is, the more quickly experiences arise and cease because the mind isn't feeding anything, for unwholesome states at least. For wholesome states, they arise and cease too, but they keep coming because the mind isn't, uh, it's like, on, the only thing that keeps wholesome states from continuing is the mind goes off in other directions. In a way, we, we can define wholesome states, wholesome emotional patterns like kindness and equanimity and a tenderness of heart, a compassionate, compassionate heart, a joyful, enlivened heart. Those qualities are more inherent, or they are inherent qualities of the mind. And so they get suppressed or obscured when the mind gets fixated, gets caught, identified, with other particular patterns. So when the mind is seeing joy or seeing equanimity or seeing compassionate tenderness of heart, kindness of heart, the more it sees it, the more it's going to see it next moment. So a moment of awareness of equanimity conditions makes it more likely to notice equanimity in the next moment, to see it, to see it more deeply, to experience it more deeply. And it's just the opposite with the unwholesome states. If we see anger very clearly, naturally the mind won't identify with it. The mind identifies with the experience of anger or any of the unwholesome states. It identifies with it because it's not seeing it clearly. It's not seeing it as a natural arising because of the way the mind's conditioned. So it takes it personally. It feels, I'm angry. I'm impatient. I'm in need. I'm confused, I'm full of doubt. And then that identification, in a sense, charges it, so it's more likely to arise in the next moment, and then, well, again, that strong tendency to get identified with the next arising. And on and on, it builds up a head of steam. So, the only hope for us is to... uh, develop a steadiness of mind. That's really at the heart of practice because without the steadiness, there's no hope of clearly comprehending what's arising in the moment. And without clearly comprehending what's arising, there's really no way for wisdom to arise. If wisdom doesn't arise, the mind tends to repeat what it's done before over and over and over and over again. And if you find that that's what's happening in your life and in your sitting practice, that something happens and then your mind responds in a very predictable way over and over again, and that predictable way, let's say, isn't productive. You're not learning anything. It's stressful. The mind ends up being burdened or tied up in knots. Then you can just remind yourself that clearly the mind isn't seeing clearly, right? Because if it did, it wouldn't keep following, following into this pattern. So, why isn't the mind seeing clearly? Well, what's the proximate cause for seeing clearly? Steadiness, balance of mind. If the mind's not steady or balanced, it's not going to see clearly. 
Well, what supports that balance, excuse me, or steadiness of mind? The continuity of mindfulness. And this is really goes to the heart of meditation practice. It's what we talked about last week. The whole ritual of sitting down, taking some time, listening to the body, and, and really uncovering that basic goodness of heart that cares about the body as we're settling into our meditation position on a chair, on the floor. It's really useful to use that settling process to uncover basic compassion. Because that's our motivation for practicing. I'm here, I'm sitting down, I've carved out this 30 minutes, this 60 minutes of my day, because I care about this life. And I have some sense that unless I, out of compassion for myself, unless I cultivate this continuity of mindful awareness, there's no hope for the mind to be steady and in balance. And if my mind's not steady and in balance, there's really no hope for the mind to see things as they are, to have insight. And if the mind doesn't have insight, there's really no hope for any deep change in how the mind relates, how the mind is in the moment. Change just doesn't happen. There are particular causes and conditions that lead to the mind or the heart being transformed. And so we really want to understand, well, what are those? Well, the mind has to see something it hasn't seen before in order to change. If we keep seeing the same things out of habit, like experiencing, understanding things the same way, we've always understood things, like nobody likes me, that's my way of operating in the world, just assuming nobody likes me or everybody thinks I'm stupid, then I'll keep seeing the world in that way. Unless the degree of balance, the degree of steadiness of mind reveals something that the mind isn't seeing. Like um, there is some pervasive yucky feeling in my heart of not being good enough. You know, that we all have this to some degree, that sense of unworthiness. And then if I'm unconscious of that most of the time, then it makes sense that that would trigger and support a pattern of assuming nobody likes me or everybody thinks I'm stupid. Or whatever particular pattern, there's so many different expressions of our ignorance. Uh, an ignorance that arises from not seeing things clearly. And then it builds, these patterns build, like I said, a head of steam. They get some momentum, become harder to break. But the thing is, clear seeing, seeing things as they are, breaks apart these patterns, these self-centered, destructive patterns of the mind, conditioned patterns of the mind. And steadiness or balance of mind and clear seeing is what allows for these insights that transform one's view or one's understanding. And that steadiness and balance is the unavoidable result of the continuity of mindfulness. See, when we take our mind away from our thoughts about things, which generally, almost always, is agitating, whenever, it doesn't really matter what we're thinking about, but when the mind is completely engaged in thinking about life or thinking about things, you know, our language, really, we really can't help it when we think, and the way our language is structured, we immediately start... Um, 
relating or understanding from a dualistic point of view. There's good and there's bad. There's me and there's you. There's this and there's that. That's just the way our language works. You know, language really works on this level of diversifying. There's this, there's that. And then once we have this diversity of experiences or objects, then we evaluate them. There's some that we like and some that we don't like, things we fear, things we hope for. And all that's agitating. Living in that world of things we really want, things we're really afraid of, it's stressful because we feel like there's always something we have to do. There's always something good that we could be manipulating or strategizing to get. And there are always things that are bad and scary that we could be manipulating and strategizing to get away from or to keep at bay in some way. So the continuity of mindfulness, what we're doing is we're taking the mind, so to speak, that's fixated on thinking about this and that, good and bad, me and you, and we're giving it something else to do, which we're calling continuity of mindfulness. So we're training the mind to be present with the body sitting, or be present with the breath moving in the body, or be present with hearing. And not just a moment of recognizing, oh, hearing is like this, or sitting is like this, or breathing in is like this, but that sustained, moment-to-moment, relaxed, clear presence with the body, with the breath, with sound, and of course, with more and more practice, with any object, it doesn't really matter how the mind is sustaining present moment awareness, because any object will do. Reaching the arm will do, seeing will do, smelling will do, any sensation of body will do, even that moment of mindfulness of thinking will do. As long as the mind isn't absorbed or caught up in the content that is simply recognizing thinking as being known, Thinking is just as much a present moment object as reaching in, reaching is, or hearing is, or seeing is, or breathing in is, or breathing out is, right? So if we train the mind instead to sustain present moment awareness, then in order to do that wholeheartedly, the mind has to wholeheartedly be with the arising objects of experience. Maybe the arising object is more exclusive to the arising of the different sensations with the breath. You know, the touching, touching, touching as the air is going in the nostrils, and the touching, touching, touching as the air is going out of the nostrils. So if the mind is attending to that stream, that unfolding stream of sensation that we call the breath, then it can't be worrying, it can't be planning, it can't get absorbed in thinking. There may be thinking, but now it's in the background, and in the foreground of attention is the actual reality of touching, right? The ear touching, 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 touching. Or if you're noticing the breath in the belly, if that's easier, then you're just feeling that the sensations of expansion as the belly, the abdominal wall rises or expands out. And then as you exhale, you notice the sensations of the abdominal wall contracting, crawling. And so if we can give ourselves wholeheartedly to the present moment and using something initially simple like the physicality of sitting or the physicality of breathing or just the experience of hearing, if we're fully 100% present, then we have fully 100% dropped the world of ideas and beliefs and hopes and dreams and fears. Even the sense of self has to fall away to a large degree 
if we have some continuity of mindfulness. It always sounds, you know, when you read the texts and stories of meditators, that it's such a profound experience to have a moment uh, free from the sense of self. But actually, we've all probably have experienced this. We may be unaware of that experience. We may not know how to understand that experience. But any time the mind is fully engaged without self-centered thinking, then the self, as a construct, as a weight, as a stressor on the mind, doesn't exist. This is why people who are playing sports or doing art or knitting or, you know, walking through a summer rainstorm find so much happiness, surprisingly. And they think it's because of the rainstorm or they think it's because knitting is the greatest thing on earth. And they can get really attached to the particular activity they were involved in when they had that moment of flow or that moment of happiness. But actually, it wasn't the knitting, it wasn't the rainstorm, it wasn't breathing in or breathing out. It was that the mind had completely let go of its identification with the constraints of thought, of concept. There may be thoughts and concepts there in the background, but the mind isn't locked in or caught up in, limited by thought. And that's an unusual experience for us human beings. To experience the mind or the heart that's not under the constraints or the limitations of our ideas about things is uh, stands out. It stands out because there is a lot of freedom when the mind is not bound by thought, by the um, constructs of our ideas. And of course, one of the most limiting ideas is this sense of self that's a part from everything else. When we're inhabiting, when I'm identified with that thought of me apart, alone, trying to survive, then I inhabit that space, and it's a very tight, fearful space. And this should sound familiar, because to a large degree, this is the space we inhabit, and then we get some escape from that when we go watch a good movie, and then we're inhabiting somebody else's limited space, like the character in the movie, you know? But we get a little space from our own tight little space because we're in, you know, reading a novel or watching a movie or remembering our friend and their difficulties or their joys, and we forget about our sort of tight, limited sense of self. But the more profound way is to cultivate, through meditation practice, formal and informal, through mindfulness practice, to cultivate the steadiness of mind through the continuity of present moment awareness. When we have continuity of present moment awareness, the mind comes into balance. It comes into balance because it's not agitating itself through its identification with thought. When the mind isn't identifying with thought, caught in thought, caught in the limitations of our concepts of things, then it starts to feel whole and balanced, and clear, clearly aware, and capable of clearly comprehending the nature of this, the nature of the mind, the nature of the present moment, the nature of experience. And that deeper, clear comprehension 
naturally leads to a more and more profound letting go. Or, in a more general sense, that clear comprehension leads to skillful action in the world. We just naturally become a better partner, a better friend, a better citizen, a better human being when we're clearly comprehending. But there's no way to fake this. It's not like we can borrow the Buddha's clear comprehension or some teacher's clear comprehension. We have to have our own clear comprehension, which means we have to somehow realize the steadiness of the heart, the steadiness of the mind, which means we have to somehow inspire ourselves to cultivate a continuity of mindfulness, which means we have to put down our identification with thought. And hating thought, making thought, making thinking the bad guy, isn't the way to do it. That's just another thought that we're identified with. Now we're living inside that thought, that thinking is bad. And we could have conferences about how thinking is bad, you know, and write books about it and chat with our friends about how my thinking is so bad and I wish I... But the actual way to cultivate this continuity of mindfulness is to practice. Practice giving the heart, giving the mind, or more specifically, giving attention to things as they are. And you can do this all day long. So when you're walking, you're just walking. When you're reaching, you're just reaching. When we're brushing the teeth, it's just that. When we're planning, we're just planning. So the mind knows it's just planning being known. It's still planning. It's still conversing, still responding to the email. But there's this thread of mindfulness, this thread of continuity of mindfulness that understands this is just something being known. That's why in this tradition of practice we talk about the one who knows this knowing quality of mind. And uh, this is our real refuge, is learning to rest back in the knowing. Because that's how we maintain this thread of mindfulness, this continuity of present moment attention. And this is what brings about the steadiness. And it's really a profound change. I remember Joseph Goldstein talked about it, one of my teachers talks about it as, you know, initially we're like an upside-down bowl. And the practice is taking a marble or a pearl and putting it at the top of the bowl, and it's there in balance for about a tenth of a second, and then it rolls off. And then we look around, we find that marble or pearl, you know, and we bring it and we put it back down, and it immediately rolls off and goes under the furniture or something, and we find it, and it's frustrating. But that's that's where we're at. The mind's tendency is to go back to thought. We want to think about things. And even, we think we're doing the practice, but actually we're just thinking about the practice. We're thinking about how bad we are at it, or we're thinking about how good we are at it, or we're thinking about how beautiful the practice is, but that's still more thinking, more identification. So we have to keep uh, being willing to find the attention and bring it, and it's not quite correct to say we're bringing it back to the present moment, because where does the present moment go? It can't go anywhere. (laughs) It's already here. So this act of coming back, you know, putting the pearl at the top of the bowl, it's much more a movement of wisdom than that we're actually doing anything with attention. It's more that the mind is understanding that this is the present moment. This is how it is now. This is being known. Because the knowing quality of the mind doesn't go away. 
knowing doesn't stop. We just are forgetful about it. We, we, it's obscured in some way, so the mind is unaware of the knowing quality. So this putting the pearl back on the top of the bowl is more of a remembering, ah, this is how it is. This is the present moment. However doubtful or confused or obscured or beautiful, expanded the mind is, this is how it is then. And then with practice, Joseph Goldstein talks about how the bull comes back upright. And so now, when we bring the attention back to the present moment, its tendency is to stay there. So there's more, it's easier to have that continuity of present moment attention for longer periods of time. Still, things can happen, things can arise, shake the bowl a little bit, and the marble, you know, the pearl will do this a little bit, but what's its tendency now? Its tendency is to keep coming back and eventually get stable and steady. And then you'll notice this when you do have some momentum in your practice, and you feel really more steady in life, and then somebody will insult you or something really juicy will happen, and you'll see yourself kind of getting shook up, and your mind keeps wanting to go back to it. You know, you saw a provocative movie, and your mind keeps wanting to think about this, or you saw something in the catalog you really liked, and, or met a person you really liked, and the mind keeps wanting to go back there. But it's like the mind begins to notice how agitating it is to fear, or to want, or to doubt. And its tendency is just to come back to the present moment, to... The stillness. Now, stillness doesn't mean inactivity. Stillness means it's the mind is letting things be what they are, letting everything be, and everything is already moving. So, the stillness includes just the natural movement of all things. It's just that the mind isn't adding anything. So, the that image, you know, to use this um, bowl as a metaphor for the mind. We need to understand that what's still is the sense of knowing. That's what's still. But everything else is moving, including the personality, including emotion. So stillness doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're flat or unresponsive. And people get this wrong and, you know, they get into Buddhist practice, but they're imitating and they think they need to be equanimous. So they start acting equanimous. That's called repression. <laughs> and it stinks. I mean, it really does. When we're that way, it, it harms ourselves. Nobody wants to be around us when we're pretending to be equanimous or we're pretending to be wise or we're pretending to be generous or kind. So really, that has to be a natural arising out of the stillness. The mind has learned not to take anything personally, not to cling to what's coming and going, but it actually ends up really freeing up the personality, freeing up the heart, the heart that can respond. Out of the stillness, the heart responds much more skillfully and beautifully in the moment than if we were trying to, trying to be skillful or trying to be beautiful in our response. Of course, you know, the tendency is when we're sitting there, let's say we have a little continuity of mindfulness, we're with the breath, we're with the breath, we're leaving the breath alone, but we're clearly aware, we're comprehending the breath as a natural movement, an impersonal movement, like I'm not breathing, it's just the body breathing, 
coming in, going out, and there's some real steadiness. But in that quiet, in that steadiness, in that calm, maybe a thought comes up about, oh, yeah, I didn't do that thing. Or something from the past. Oh, I did do that thing. <laughs> you know? And uh, if the mind gets identified, then there's that very poignant place. Like, what do we do when we realize the mind's been distracted? Do we judge ourself? Do we, are we willing to just feel the ouch of that contraction, right? Because once it's arisen, the heart's already affected. It has made an imprint on the heart. That scene of that memory or the feeling of that emotion or the thinking of that thought, it's as if it, you know, hits the heart. The tendency is to tighten up. Whenever we're getting harmed or hurt, if we take it personally, we, we tighten up, we cringe. But we can learn to be undefended, like to allow that imprint, that insult, that ouch, to go right in. Like, maybe it's okay for this memory to have arisen, for this pain to follow, without meeting it with resistance or fear. Maybe that's okay. Same thing with a really attractive or beautiful memory or thought. Maybe that, you know, that kind of possibility and the excitement, maybe that can just also be a, just a flow, a movement of energy. We learn this in very simple ways. I, for a while, really, and now it's just habit to, I mostly remember, when I hurt myself, like I bumped my head or stubbed my toe or, I practice, and I've been practicing for a while, just letting that rush of pain in. And it's it's really amazing. I, I had a really bad fall a couple years ago where I slipped on some stairs. I was carrying a bunch of stuff, and my feet went up, and I just landed on my way to my lower back and uh, right on the edge of the stair. And I sat there, and... Uh, and I and I knew enough, you know, that oh, that was a bad fall. I mean, it's really obvious. So I just open to the experience, you know, just let it, let that force of sensation just come and be known. And I fainted <laughs> because we're not used to, you know, at least my mind is not used to that intense pain. You know, we're used to distracting ourselves or taking it in doses. It's like, you know, the Sometimes we hear about children, or maybe you're one of those children that experienced some abuse or some difficult experience when you were young. And, you know, it's not easy for a young person to be fully present when things are really scary. So we kind of cut off the pain in some way. We bury it. We find psychological ways to hide from what we're feeling, what we're seeing. Hopefully, someday, we can open those doors and windows and feel what we felt in that, that moment to, to really let it move. But we can learn to let everything in, everything move. And so we want to, in our formal sitting practice, we want that attitude. So when difficult experience, even something like pain in the body, the knee starts to hurt, or somebody's moving and it's irritating the mind, or whatever it might be, you're really sleepy and you don't like those sensations of being sleepy, then you can... Practice letting that experience in. Offering up no resistance. 
And the only way you know you're not offering up any resistance is to get very interested in the experience. So it's not fair to say, I'm not offering any resistance, I just don't want to look at it. No. You have to really turn toward it. You have to actually welcome it in. That's how you know you're not offering up any resistance. Because there's nothing in the body and mind that looks tight. And the mind is very interested. It's alert. It's bright. Clearly comprehending that it's like this. The pain in the knee is like this. The feelings of disappointment are like this. One of the wonderful things about meditating regularly is that all the unskillful, ignorant things that we've said in the last 24 hours often will arise. Because when we say stupid things and are, or do stupid things or are unskillful in life, we don't really want to own it because it's humiliating. It like doesn't fit our image of ourselves, so we suppress it, we hide from it. But now we're practicing being wide open in our meditation, you know, seven, eight hours later or whatever. And then in that open space, whatever we've hid from will just arise. I mean, that's its tendency. So there it is. You have that memory of what you said or what you did. And then you have to be undefended, like not afraid to have been that person who did that thing, said that thing. Oh, maybe it's okay. And now for me, this happens quite regularly. I mean, I've always been someone, like we all are, who makes mistakes. But now I don't have to wait long before it keeps coming up until, you know, if it isn't the first time or the second time, Eventually I realized, oh, this is just a yucky feeling that's asking for full, complete attention. Undefended heart. It's just what it is. And by the way, it's already that way. So hiding from it doesn't change what it is. It just prolongs the misery. So we can instead turn toward it. Why not? And this is what we're learning to do in our formal meditation practice, because this will happen many more times when we're sitting just because of the relative quiet of the mind when we're in a quiet space, when we've got our technique of coming back to the body, or coming back to the breath in the body, coming back to hearing as a way to maintain or to support that continuity of present moment awareness. It's not about the breath or it's not about the body. It's about the continuity of present moment awareness that leads to a steadiness of mind a calm, clear presence, which leads to insight, seeing things clearly as they are, which, which leads to the mind being transformed, the heart being transformed. So we have a little bit more than 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people what you've learned in your life, in your practice, questions you have about the, the practice. It's always nice to hear from people about their experience in sitting, the challenges you experience, the benefits, it's, uh, it inspires us when we hear from each other. So I encourage people to speak up, if you don't mind. What comes to mind? Sunita, would you shut the blower off? It's the top switch above the thermostat. Above the thermostat. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks. I will be able to hear each other better. Yeah, say your name. Not do that 
No, it's a great question. And, and this is the thing about the way the Buddha taught. He always taught in terms of better understanding cause and effect. Because as you're suggesting, craving or wanting to be equanimous or wanting to be kind isn't actually the cause for being kind. It's the cause for craving. You know, craving whatever uh, leads to craving. It doesn't lead to that. It doesn't matter how much we want to be equanimous. It won't actually lead to equanimity. What actually leads to equanimity is to understand, to have seen in our mind, like when we do experience the mind in the direction of equanimity, that to look and see, well, what were the supporting causes that allowed that equanimity to arise and get established in the mind? Or just the opposite, what is it that the mind does that leads to an agitated mind, a reactive mind? Now that, we can immediately start to learn about that. Because we all experience quite often the mind being reactive. But are we interested in what is the mind doing that supports this reactivity? And maybe then the mind can cease doing that if it sees it clearly enough. So that's the, that's the key, is to get interested enough in equanimity and these other beautiful qualities of mind. If we're interested in enough, we'll, we'll be interested enough to observe cause and effect. How they come to be, both for that positive state, but also for the opposite, the negative states. Thanks, Casey. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, say your name again. And that's a, that you describe kind of a, an important uh, flip that can happen for us. Normally the way our mind is, is it's being pushed around by different experiences, like whatever news story happens to come up on the radio. And, and we feel a bit helpless, like, well, what else can we do but be pushed around by the different experiences we run into? But we can have a different attitude. The wrong attitude would be, you know, to want to withdraw from life. I mean, to some degree, it's good to be careful about the experiences we bump up into, and we already are, but that's not an ultimate answer to not have experience. But instead, what we can do is have the sense of medicine, like we'll use the radio and particular music, kinds of music, and particular friendships, and particular um, interactions and experiences as medicine. And when this is the way the mind is, then, that, then we discern, would that kind of medicine be really good for my mind, for my heart now? Because it would bring it into balance. But this other kind of experience, that wouldn't be good medicine. So I'll avoid that experience, and I'll seek out this other experience. 
And I, I'm that way. You know, I've never been really into music, but you know, I'm not that atypical. I like music, and that I really use it now as medicine. Uh, like the particular, I'll kind of notice my emotional state, and if I need something, I'll find the particular song, and I'll listen to a few songs, and it'll have the effect I was hoping for or looking for, and then I'll shut it off. Now, I wish I could be that way about news. I'm not. You know, I, I still get to the place where I get thrown around. I observe it to some degree. I'm aware of the addiction, and I'm aware that the mind likes to be pushed around. And what I found is that the, the very subtle uneasiness of my heart is looking for a more gross uh, kind of cause for it. So it's almost like we look for experiences that match match the more subtle qualities of our heart. So, you know, the example might be, you know, when we're really feeling lonely, we go play music that's about loneliness, you know, or something like that. But of course, what would be better to do is just to feel what we're feeling instead of using some external experience to distract ourselves from what we're feeling. And some, you know, we start where it's easy, and then we start to work where it's not so easy, where there's more addiction, more resistance built up in the mind. Thanks for sharing that good example, Paige. Good luck with the radio. (laughs) Maybe we'll stop working. No, it's actually better to to work because then you will learn more. You know, it's like I said, it, for periods of time, it is nice to get rid of the radios and those sorts of things. And we call that retreat practice. Like tomorrow, I'm going up north for till Friday for a short retreat, and you know, I won't have those things for a while. And then it's easy. You know, it's relatively easy for the mind to settle because I'm not going to be seeing anybody and I'm not going to be listening to any media, and it would just be me with my mental conditioning, which is loud enough. But it's relatively simple. But that's something, that's like a particular kind of medicine. But we don't want that to be the only medicine. Because otherwise it would be like, well, God, if only I weren't alive, it would be so much easier. You know? Or if only I didn't see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or think. You know, so looking for a surgeon. <laughs> Other thoughts? Yeah. Say your name again. Rob. Rob. Yeah. And uh, and then they go through, and then I I feel cleansed. And um, the experience that I had when we were talking while we were going through, um, like noticing the breath and the body sensation, was a sense of being that. And there's, there's real strength in community because to some degree we're all sharing similar intentions 
And in a way, it amplifies that intention, makes it clearer, just in the context of being in a room together with people with a similar intention to be present, to be aware of what's moving without getting caught by it or identified with it. And that doesn't mean we don't learn a lot when we practice alone, but it will be messier generally for most people than when you practice in in a group because there are advantages. But the learning can be better in some ways alone because it is more challenging. But if it's so challenging that you don't do it, then find a group to practice with. (laughs) And ideally we want both because uh, the the depth of practice maybe increases when we're with a group, but um, we learn other things when we're alone. Time for a couple more comments. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Pierre. There's one thing I realized recently that it's really easy for me when I'm sitting to to have the impression that I'm aware of the body or the sensation in, in the body, but I'm actually thinking about these sensations. And recently I was really able to make a difference between what well, I can think all oh, happened. A pain in my shoulder and the pain is moving, but I'm actually still at the, at the level of thinking about it. And then I, I wish that I were paying more attention to what's going on. I noticed that the sensation was actually much more fluctuating than I thought. And, and there were moments where I had actually no sensation of pain, I was still thinking that I had something. Yeah. So yeah. it's really an interesting distinction between. Thinking that I'm aware of about the body and actually being aware of the sensation as it changes. Yeah. And it's, a, it's not a small point that Pierre is making because, you know, things have the appearance of being static and real because the mind has created a concept in, in lieu of the actual experience. And a concept, although it also comes and goes, the thought of pain in my shoulder, that thought comes and goes, but each time part of that arising of that thought that I have pain in my shoulder is the static sense that my shoulder is a constant, the pain in my shoulder is a constant. That's what the concept is sort of, that's the nature or the quality of that concept. So concepts create a sense of permanence. And because of that, then the mind gets confused. It believes that. But the actual sense, uh, at the level of sensation, or at the level, what we call dhamma, the way it is, things are in flux. They're defined by movement. And so you can really notice the difference between, like, when you feel really badly about having done something stupid. And uh, it's really nice to go back and forth between that whole construct in the mind that I'm no good, I did something really bad, this person's not going to like me, which has, seems like it has so much solidity, so much reality, so much truth. And then to just uh, touch or open to the pain, whatever that residual pain of having made a mistake, which has a different kind of a quality. It's very alive. We may not want to feel it. It may be very unpleasant that it's really defined by life energy, which is alive, it's moving. And in a way, even though it's very unpleasant, it feels very good to get close to it. You mentioned this, Rob. You know, when you're with feelings, there's something healing or 
when they're allowed to move, right? It's, well, I forget the word you used, cleansed. You said you felt cleansed because when we allow that pain of humiliation to just move, it's like liberating. But the thought, I did something really stupid, that thought's not liberating. That's very constricting. It's like a prison that we can live in for a very long time. And here's the great tragedy. Even if that pain of humiliation has moved, like Rob described, and we feel cleansed, but the thinking <coughs> and the thoughts about it remain, and the mind keeps repeating them, then the mind, because the mind and body relate, reflect each other so deeply, if we keep inhabiting those thoughts, identifying with those thoughts, that pain will come back, even if we've cleansed it, even if we've made peace with that humiliating experience. We will recreate the pain of humiliation because, in a sense, the mind demands consistency or, you know, integrity. And so we start to live, we start to feel what we're thinking. So if we think we're in danger, we feel like we're in danger, even if there's actually no danger. Right? So we know this way that the mind and body reflect each other. So it's really important that we trust the visceral experience, make peace with it, and that we develop uh, a healthy wisdom with our thoughts. And we know that thoughts are just thoughts. And we have to keep popping any sort of sense of truth to thoughts. Thoughts are never true. They're just a conceptual mapping of what we of what the mind has is taking in this moment to be true. That it will never be the truth. It will be just the mind's conceptual mapping of truth. And so we always have to go to the truth, which in this practice we call Dhamma, the way it is. The direct seeing a way of being or seeing or experiencing that's not colored by the thoughts. Thoughts can direct the mind to the present moment, but thoughts can never replace the present moment because it's different. Thanks for bringing that up, Pierre. That's good. And we need to leave it here, so we'll just take a breath or two together. A moment of silence. And it's okay to let go of the words. Inhabiting the space of the present moment. And inspired to cultivate this continuity of mindfulness, clear comprehension, cultivate steadiness of the heart and mind, to cultivate insight and the transformation of the heart as a deep way of caring for this life and a deep way of caring for all beings. So may this be so. Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.